Did you know that if it wasn't for the Republican Party, I wouldn't have the right to vote? No women would. No black people would be able to vote, no indigenous people either. Yet they haven't won over 50% of the vote for any of those groups in half a century. And I want to know why. I've been working on this series, A Tale of Two Parties, because I want to understand them. The heart of them. The core of them. I want to understand what they were like when they came to be and how they've changed over time. And who changed them. We're living through an identity crisis, particularly with the Republican Party, but would you believe that we've lived through many of them already? In today's episode, we're going to meet the Republican Party at the height of their power and examine the man that brought it all crashing down. We're going to look at the roots and the rise of American conservatism, as well as the origins of right-wing extremism. I'm Hilary Lombard, and this is a special episode of Moderate Party, A Tale of Two Parties. Today's episode is called America First, The Rise of American Conservatism. Let's get started. to brutal and perilous work and living conditions just because they could. But your parents were part of the generation that stood up and said, enough. Your parents' generation stood up to corruption and big business and said, you can't treat us like we're disposable. You can't just work us to death. You can't just do whatever you want. They fought to make the world better for everybody, not just for the rich. Your parents were what we call progressives, and America was in the midst of a progressive era. Progressives believed that human nature could be improved through the enlightened application of regulation, incentives, and punishment. They also believed that the power of the federal government could be harnessed to improve the individual and transform society into something better. And for a while, it did. These beliefs were shared by Republican Theodore Roosevelt and Democratic President Woodrow Wilson. Both of these men would be described as progressives. And during their administration, legislation passed to break up monopolies ban child labor, strengthen protections for consumers and workers, protect natural resources, and a lot more. They oversaw constitutional amendments that would establish the income tax, allow people to directly elect their senators, and give women the right to vote. They also significantly expanded the power of the presidency and the federal government as a whole. It makes sense if you think about it. Business had become so big and so unregulated that the government had to get bigger if it wanted to stand up to them. Not only that, but President Roosevelt and President Wilson, they're not like the other presidents. They're not like the ones that came before. They represent you. They talk to you. You know them. You like them. And that's why nobody seemed to mind that they were expanding the power of the presidency because they were doing it to protect you. When war breaks out in Europe, you support President Wilson's policy of neutrality. As you see it, war in Europe, it's just not America's business. We should stay out of it. Which is why in 1916, the first year that you will ever cast a vote for president, you cast it for Woodrow Wilson, who campaigned under the slogan, he kept us out of war. Except 
he doesn't. Four months after assuming office, he asks Congress for a declaration of war, and they grant it. The United States enters World War I in April of that same year. Except there's a problem. At the time, the U.S. had a small army of about 100,000 volunteers. So to remedy that, President Woodrow Wilson urged Congress to pass military conscription, and they do. Congress passed the Selective Service Act in May of 1917, an act that required all men in the United States between the ages of 21 and 30 to register for military service. Within a few months, 10 million men across the country had registered in response to the military draft. President Wilson, a progressive that believed in using the power of the federal government to improve people's lives, had just urged Congress to force you to enlist and risk your death. It's funny what a little time can do, huh? Two million American soldiers went to Europe. One million would make it to the front lines, and of that number, one out of every 10 would not come home. But you come home. And when you do, your country, like most of the world, is infected with the Spanish flu, the deadliest pandemic in history. It kills 50 million people, over 600,000 Americans. It attacked young, healthy, and strong people. Kids would go to school and never come home. But you already know about the Spanish flu. It moved through your camp when you were on the front lines, killing thousands, and somehow it managed to follow you home after the war is over, wrapping you in death and trauma. And then that summer, wartime racial tensions bubble over and racial violence breaks out across 26 U.S. cities in what will become known as the Red Summer. Everywhere you look is violence and death, chaos and unhappiness. The war is over, but you don't know peace. The things that mattered to you before, they just don't matter anymore. The progressive era was full of fights, strikes, and reform, but on the other side of a brutal war and a deadly pandemic, you're just tired of fighting. You're tired of change. You've had too much of both. So when it comes time to vote for president, the candidate that appeals most to you is the man promising to get things back to normal. He's a Republican, and unlike Wilson, he has no interest in international intervention. He says that he's going to put America first. I think it's an inspiration to patriotic devotion to safeguard America first, to stabilize America first, to prosper America first, to think of America first, to exalt America first, to live for and revere America first. That man is Warren Harding, a Republican from Ohio and a member of the Republican elite. Harding was not particularly talented as a politician, nor was he particularly inspiring as a leader. He was an average candidate with a handsome face and an incredible campaign manager. I'm not joking about his face being a factor. Women had just been granted the right to vote, and Republican operatives thought that they could win the female vote if Harding was the candidate because he was so hot, the ladies wouldn't be able to resist. This story only gets funnier when you look up what Harding looked like at the time, and don't worry, I have included links in the show notes, so go ahead and check that out. But maybe they were right. Maybe nobody could resist Hawkeye Harding because he wins 60% of the popular vote in a landslide victory. He campaigns on getting things back to normal. You know, building back better. Which is pretty impressive if you consider that he didn't even leave the House. Similar to Joe Biden's campaign during COVID, Harding basically ran what you call a front porch campaign. Now, Harding is generally believed to be one of our worst presidents. He's not that bright and not that articulate. He doesn't know where he wants to take the country, and even if he did, he wouldn't know how to explain it to the country. 
He didn't think that the president was a leader or a caretaker. He thought that his role was mainly ceremonial. So he just tried to stay out of the way. While in office, he had a very steamy and very well-documented affair, which should come as no surprise considering he's such a babe. His affair wasn't the only scandal that plagued his administration, however, because he put his friends in positions of power, like making his campaign manager the attorney general. He hung out with a pretty shady and corrupt group of guys for the most part, and many of them were later charged with defrauding the government. And a few of them went to jail. Harding knew this, but what's a guy going to do? Turn his back on his friends? Violate the bro code? I don't think so. Part of the problem was that Harding wanted to be liked so badly he would never say no to his friends, which, you know, isn't exactly a strong leadership trait. It takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends. I award 10 points to Neville Longbottom. And I award zero points to Warren Harding. But still, he was a Republican during an era of unprecedented Republican control. The period after the Civil War saw the Republican Party gain power at incredible speed. The Republican Party won 11 out of 15 presidential elections. And one of the very few times that the electorate did pull the lever for a Democratic president, he took them into one of the most brutal wars the world had ever seen up to that point, and maybe even since. So, talk about buyer's remorse, right? Harding and the Republicans of his day were campaigning on American nostalgia, not dissimilar to the campaigns that Donald Trump ran in 2016 and Joe Biden ran in 2020. Republicans knew that Americans were nostalgic for the era before World War I. They didn't run on radical change like the Republicans of the progressive era. They ran on restoring the status quo, getting us back to normal, and for two years, Harding actually did do those things. But then, President Harding died of a sudden heart attack, leaving the presidency to his vice president, a very serious man named Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge was notified of Harding's death that night and was immediately sworn in by his father, who was chief justice. He then celebrated by going to bed. President Coolidge was too cool for us as a country. He had a very limited view of the presidency. He believed in small government, especially at the federal level, and practiced a passive style of leadership. He saw little need to intervene in issues that Congress or the states could handle without him, which is probably why he didn't feel guilty about taking three months off to go fishing, which is a true story. Some other funny and true facts about Coolidge. He's the only president born on the 4th of July, he didn't keep chairs in his office because he didn't like meetings to run long, and he thought that chairs would make people feel too comfortable sitting around and asking him for things. He had two pet lion cubs. He named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction, swear to God. And once a supporter sent him a raccoon and encouraged him to eat it for dinner, but instead he pardoned it and named it Rebecca. Unclear why. On a more serious note, President Coolidge was a fierce defender of the Constitution, and he stood up to the KKK and supported anti-lynching laws at a time when it was not necessarily easy or safe to do so. President Coolidge thought that economic growth was synonymous with social welfare. And if that's what you believe, of course you're going to do whatever is in your power to eliminate anything that gets in the way of growth. He cut taxes, reduced federal spending, and minimized regulation. And for a while, it worked. It spurred the tremendous growth of consumer products, especially automobiles and radios, thus significantly increasing literal mobility, like we were able to go out and see each other in a way that we never could before. By 1923, unemployment had dropped to a low of 2%. Most workers in manufacturing were fully employed and their average paycheck reached $22 a week, which was an all-time high and only slightly more than we pay teachers today. 
To understand just how pro-business the country is at this time, consider a book written by Bruce Fairchild Barton, a man with a name so white it might as well be Abercrombie and Fitch. Our good pal Bruce writes this book called The Man That Nobody Knows, in which he claims that Jesus is the original ad man, and that the Bible is basically just the greatest marketing campaign of all time, which is very... yikes. What is a man profited if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? A lot. He has profited a lot. One soul for the whole world? That is an amazing deal. What's actually cringier is that he's not saying this as a critique of Christianity. He's saying it as a positive thing. So Barton is arguing that Jesus is basically just our business daddy, and instead of being outraged, people buy it. It's a bestseller. When World War I ended, the American people desperately wanted to get back to normal, but a few years into the 20s, they don't just want to return to normal. They want something better than normal. Americans are chasing pleasure, power, and profit at every opportunity. Everyone's a hustler, everyone is moving up, and change is coming quickly. If you were alive in this era, your parents would have grown up traveling by horse and buggy, and yet before your 30th birthday, you would have purchased a car, a fridge, and a radio. Not to mention seeing planes close up and living in a city with electricity. This is an insane amount of change in a very short period. But that change comes at a cost. While we remember the 1920s for all of their prosperity, they're not without conflict. The 20s aren't full of existential threats like a world war or a lethal pandemic. No, the wars that are fought in the 20s are cultural. These culture wars pit a more cosmopolitan, modernist, and urban culture against a more traditional, religious, and rural culture. The decade witnesses a titanic struggle between an old and a new America. Immigration, race, alcohol, evolution, gender politics, and sexual morality all become major battlefields in U.S. politics. It's a decade of disdain, distrust, anger, and polarization. If you want to understand today's Republican Party, it's critical that you understand the 1920s. Because the Republican Party of today is arguably born here. And in a lot of ways, the 20s is what they're constantly trying to get back to. This is the decade when the Republican Party aligns itself in opposition to progressivism. It's also the birth of the Republican economic philosophy that largely still dominates the party today. A belief in low taxes, spending cuts, no regulation, and a small federal government. This period also marks the birth of the anti-wing of the party. Anti-immigration, anti-communist, anti-socialist. In the 1920s, immigration hit record highs, particularly immigration from Central and Eastern European countries. For many native-born Americans, a sudden influx of languages they didn't speak, cultures they didn't share, and religion that they didn't understand felt pretty scary. It felt like their voice, values, and beliefs, those that they associated with America, would be overpowered by those held by the newcomers that were entering their country in really high numbers. These Americans looked at the United States and they saw success, opportunity, and happiness. They looked to the countries many of these immigrants originated from and they saw violence, economic ruin, and ideological revolution. The rise of fascism in Italy, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, the emergence of communism as a revolutionary force, these were all things that Americans feared coming to their shores and they viewed foreigners as the vehicle for these ideas infiltrating the United States. This nativist backlash leads to a collection of quota laws and other anti-immigrant legislation, as well as laws aimed at cracking down on leftist radicals and anti-American activities. Remember, at this point, when I say leftist, I'm talking about Marxist, communists, and socialists. Democrats had yet to claim this label, and they won't for a while. 
The final Republican president of the 1920s is Herbert Hoover, and much like the appliance that shares his name, he sucks. He just does. It's not his fault, per se. Among the cruelties of popular political history is that almost everyone below the level of president winds up being forgotten, while presidents either take the blame or the credit for everything that happened under their administration. Some could argue that Herbie's actually a bit of a tragic figure because it is brutally unfair to measure the value of a person against the measuring stick of the greatest economic collapse in our nation's history. But that is the job, right? I mean, nobody said being the president was easy, and being the president in the early years of the Great Depression was particularly hard. Prior to the presidency, Hoover was a rising star. In World War I, he managed to cut consumption of food at home and feed the Allies abroad, all without mandated rationing which is pretty impressive, and it saved millions of lives. He kept people from starving. There's a dark irony to that for what's about to happen. Um, but they, at this time, they call him the great engineer. He believes that there is an engineering solution for every problem that we would encounter as human beings. And elites love this guy. They thought he was a genius. Think of Hoover like the Elon Musk of his day, because he was brilliant, adored by elites, and also kind of an asshole. In June 1930, a delegation goes looking for him and they request a public works program. And Hoover responds by telling them, Gentlemen, you've come 60 days too late. The depression is over. He insisted that nobody's actually starving and the hobos are better fed than they've ever been. He claimed that the vendors selling apples on street corners had actually left their job for the more profitable one, which was selling apples on street corners. Understanding Hoover is essential to understanding the downfall of the Republican Party at the start of the Depression. Because Hoover, he believes in self-reliance and something called rugged individualism, which he views as the American tradition, the thing that made America unique among nations. And he's not wrong. American individualism is responsible for most of the freedoms that we enjoy today. The first 10 amendments in the Constitution, for example, are all about protecting individual rights from government power. Our founders were all in on individualism, and that was pretty unheard of at the time. In most cultures, historically, a person's rights were largely determined by their group identity. In ancient Rome, as an example, there was a patrician class and a plebeian class. Patricians had considerably more rights and powers than plebeians, but membership in this class was determined by ancestry, so no amount of individual effort could change that power imbalance. But America has always been different. Our founders created us with the idea that the individual is sovereign, that we're all equal under God. The entire principle behind the American dream is that you can be whatever you want to be in America if you just work hard enough. Think about our friend Herbie Hoover. His entire life reinforced this idea of rugged individualism. He was born the son of a Quaker blacksmith, and then his parents die. He's orphaned at a really early age, and ultimately, he puts himself through school at Stanford University and becomes a self-made multimillionaire. He climbed the social and economic ladder as a result of his hard work and determination. So why wouldn't he believe that everybody could do the same? While Hoover is the first person to coin the term rugged individualism, the philosophy is built into the fabric of our country. So in the outbreak of the Great Depression, Hoover believed the economy would fix itself if every individual just tightened their bootstraps and did their part. So the government shouldn't step in. But when people are unemployed and starving, waiting in breadlines to feed their families, everything that Hoover was able to avoid when he managed the food supply in World War I, when all of that is happening, your leader telling you to fix it yourself doesn't really land well. 
Rugged individualism sounds great at the peak of the 1920s prosperity. But when nearly 13 million people are unemployed, and those who do have jobs have seen their wages cut by 42%, and things are getting worse instead of better, it might be time to evaluate a different philosophy. Similar to carrying a couch up a very narrow staircase, sometimes you need to pivot. But Hoover, and many Republicans like him, won't, and their stubborn passivity leaves the door wide open for a challenger. Heading into the 1932 election, Hoover was so unpopular that any candidate running against him would have had a pretty good shot at winning. So it feels almost unfair that the man that he had to run against was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Charming, intelligent, energetic, and one of the greatest presidents our nation's ever had. But Republicans at the time didn't see him that way. Understanding why FDR was such a threat is critical to understanding the Republican Party of the 20s and the Republican Party of today. To many Republicans, FDR was an existential threat, not just to them personally, but to the nation as a whole. While the Republicans of the day had championed rugged individualism, FDR campaigned on collectivism, basically saying that the Great Depression is too big for individualism. Instead, he believed that we needed to work together if we wanted to get through it. But when he said working together, he didn't mean like on a group project. He meant working together through an expansion of the federal government. You know who else believes that? Socialists, communists, collectivists. You see why this is going to be a problem, right? The difference between individualism and collectivism is one of the key questions that separates the parties today. But it's not just a disagreement about policy, it's a disagreement about the very foundation of government. And FDR is pretty upfront about its goals. We need enthusiasm, imagination, and the ability to face facts, even unpleasant ones, bravely. We need to correct, by drastic means if necessary, the faults in our economic system from which we now suffer. We need the courage of the young. Yours is not the task of making your way in the world, but the tax of remaking the world which you will find before you. May every one of us be granted the courage, the faith, and the vision to give the best that is in us to that remaking. Republicans feared, rightfully, that if Democrats won in 1932, the true liberalism that Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover associated with a love of the founding, religious piety, personal responsibility, individual initiative, and self-reliance would all disappear. Hoover spells it out plainly. This election is not a mere shift from ins to the outs. It means deciding the direction our country will take for centuries to come. And the thing is, he's right. That's exactly what happens. FDR and the New Deal would change the United States forever. The New Deal significantly expanded the size and scope of the federal government and in doing so, fundamentally reshaped American politics around the principle that the government has an obligation to ensure not just freedom and security, but prosperity. See, prior to the 1930s, the national debate often revolved around the question of whether the federal government should intervene in the economy. But after the New Deal, the national debate re-centers itself around the question of how it should intervene. Roosevelt didn't want to change some things. He wanted to change everything. He even changed the meaning of the word liberal, and that upset a lot of people, including our old friend, President Herbie Hoover who wrote, The New Deal, having corrupted the label of liberalism to mean collectivism, coercion, and concentration of political power, it seems historic liberalism must be conservative in contrast. And this is seen by many to be the birth of American conservatism as a movement. 
born with its fists up in staunch opposition to FDR and the New Deal, not because it's going to keep people from starving or put people back to work, that would just be some Scrooge McDuck bullshit, honestly, but because it would fundamentally and permanently alter the system of government that America was built on. To conservatives, that's a terrifying proposition. From their perspective, the American people were going through a temporary economic depression. Temporary. The depression had only been going on for four years, and yet already the American people were ready to turn their back on the system that had governed the country since its founding. The system that was so successful that it had taken America from 13 bitch-ass colonies to a dominant global power in just 150 years. Yet the American people would throw it all away after four years of hardship and the promises of a charismatic demagogue. And if you take that point seriously, it becomes much easier to understand conservatism because if you zoom out even a little bit, you can see their point. Throughout the Roosevelt administration, Republican anger only grows. They viewed Roosevelt and his administration as disorganized, ineffective, overly dominant, and incompetent. They said that the administration had seduced the American people into becoming dependent on government and in doing so had weakened their morale and killed the American spirit. From the perspective of his critics, FDR preyed upon their fears and misfortunes and used them as a ladder to climb to higher office, eroding the basic rights and freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution. And, to their credit, FDR did do some things that might lead you to believe that. Like, did you know? The Roosevelt administration seized the gold of private citizens, all of it, using Executive Order 6102, forcing them to sell their gold to the federal government at well below market rates during the Great Depression, and then they turned around and set a new official rate for gold that was much higher as a way to prop up the value of the U.S. dollar. They confiscated 2.6 metric tons of gold worth roughly $171 billion today. Or, did you know that when the Supreme Court deemed parts of FDR's New Deal unconstitutional, he tried to obstruct them by packing the court? Four conservative judges were particularly opposed to the New Deal and thought it was unconstitutional, and all of them were over 70. FDR targeted them by proposing to Congress that he could appoint one judge for every sitting judge Over 70, this would allow him to silence his conservative opposition by appointing up to six judges that support the New Deal since he handpicked them, and it would be a complete disregard of the rule of law. Court backing is something that you hear Democrats today talking about all the time. And in truth, like when you look at the hypocrisy that follows the Supreme Court nominating process, like it's a sympathetic argument. And I think that it's really interesting that it's not the first time we've heard it. But FDR's plan doesn't work, and it's one of the few scandals that actually lands a punch on him. Also say, Republicans can't stand him. But the only problem is that the American people don't feel the same way, which is why after Hoover, the Republican Party declines considerably. The Great Depression and World War II are a slap in the face to the party. All of the ideas that made them prosperous and popular, they now wore like a scarlet letter. And you can see how that can plant the seeds of the rage that follows. Nobody was complaining about their ideas and policies when they were the ideas and policies making everybody rich. Years of economic growth had earned them no loyalty from the majority. The majority abandoned them for the sparkly words and empty promises of a man that would be king. Critics of the New Deal saw it plain as day. The New Deal was a path to ruin. From the conservative perspective, our founding principles and individual liberty had kept us safe, secure, and free. Therefore, in the midst of hardship, The best way forward was to stay the course, remain steady. 
If your car drives over a patch of ice and starts sliding, you don't slam on the brakes or make drastic turns. You remain calm, you don't hit the brakes, and you try to turn into the slide. The problem was that the American people just didn't agree. The Republican Party lost 178 House seats, 40 Senate seats, and 19 governorships, leaving them with only 89 votes in both houses of Congress. FDR and the New Deal coalition remade America and the Republican Party was too weak to stop it. And the powerlessness that they feel in these years will change the GOP permanently. In many ways, it's the original wound that the party is still healing from today. The Republican Party emerges from World War II as a party in exile. They're fractured and they're unsure of themselves. They lost big sections of their voting base to the New Deal coalition, and they're in the market for new leadership and new ideas. The party is divided between a moderate majority and a conservative minority. It's no secret which group I like the most, but what might surprise you is that in the post-war era, the American people agree. Moderate Republicans are by far the most powerful and influential faction of the Republican Party. They were pro-business, internationalists that supported entering World War II, supported joining the United Nations, and supported the Cold War fight against communism. The struggle between moderates and conservatives within the party can be seen in the political royal rumble that heats up between two prominent Republicans of the era. Governor Thomas Dewey, representing the moderate Republicans of the Northeast, and Senator Robert Taft, representing the conservative Republicans of the Midwest. Choose your fighter! Thomas Dewey was a badass prosecutor that made a name for himself prosecuting the mob in New York City. He went on to become the governor of New York and the Republican nominee for president. Dewey didn't think that the Republican Party could survive trying to repeal the New Deal policies that had given so many American families economic security. He believed in compassionate capitalism, basically arguing that people needed economic security as much as they needed individual freedom. His vision of American prosperity was one in which the American people were free from dependency, whether that be from the government or unregulated business tycoons. He advocated for pro-business policies and reduced regulation, but also championed the expansion of social security, funding for public housing, expansion for civil rights, and using the government to promote health and education. Americans who honestly differ, close ranks and move forward for the nation's well-being shoulder to shoulder. Let me assure you that beginning next January 20, there will be teamwork in the government of the United States. The ideals of the American people are the ideals of the Republican Party. We have tonight lighted a beacon in this cradle of our own independence as a great America. We've lighted a beacon to give eternal hope that men may live in liberty with human dignity. Ugh. I'm sorry, I can't. He's just, he's great. I'm trying to be unbiased, but he's great. On the other side, we have Mr. Republican himself. Dewey's primary political rival is the leader of the conservative minority, Senator Robert Taft, the oldest son of former President Taft. He opposed the New Deal because he thought it was collectivist communist garbage. And he pushed back on labor rights, actually writing the Taft-Hartley Act, which created right-to-work states and pushed back on union power. He fought against any involvement in European or Asian wars and thought that America should focus more on fixing domestic issues, not weighing in on international ones. He did hold up the Republican Party's legacy of championing civil rights by speaking out against the KKK, Japanese internment, and poll taxes that kept African Americans from voting. Taft and Dewey were political rivals for most of their lives. 
Dewey's biographer Richard Norton Smith wrote that for 15 years, these two combatants waged political warfare. Their disputes pitted East against Midwest, city against countryside, internationalist against isolationist, pragmatic liberals against principled conservatives. Each man thought himself the genuine spokesman of the future, easily denouncing the other as a political heretic. Guys, the drama. Round one, fight! The two men met in 1940 at the Republican nominating convention. They were both running to be the Republican nominee, and Taft was an established senator and the son of a former president, while Dewey was a 38-year-old district attorney from New York. Both men were damaged by their opposition to World War II. Taft was further hurt by his hardline on the New Deal, and Dewey did not benefit from the fact that he was only 38 and nobody thought that he was experienced enough to lead the country through a world war, which, you know, is fair. The moderate wing of the party pushes for Wendell Wilkie, a business executive and former Democrat that had never held elected office before. But he was a decade older than Dewey and supported the Allies in their fight against Germany. Wilkie went on to win the nomination, which was particularly embarrassing for Taft, an established senator and lifelong Republican. Pretty sure he added a lot of people to his shit list that day. And one of them was definitely Thomas Dewey. Taft felt that Dewey was not conservative or consistent enough in his principles for the Republican Party. He said that he was arrogant and kind of bossy. Tom Dewey has no real courage to stand up against the crowd that wants to smear any Republican who takes a forthright position against the New Deal. There is only one way to beat the New Deal, and that's head-on. You can't just outdeal them. Dewey criticized Taft and his followers by saying, We have in our party some fine, high-minded, patriotic people who honestly oppose farm price supports, unemployment insurance, old-age benefits, slum clearance, and other social programs. These people believe in laissez-faire society and look back wistfully to the miscalled good old days of the 19th century. If such efforts to turn back the clock are actually pursued, you can bury the Republican Party as the deadest pigeon in the country. Guys, I don't know what a dead pigeon is, but it definitely sounds like it sucks. Dewey also added that people who oppose such social programs should go out and try to get elected in a typical American community and see what happens to them. But they ought not do it as Republicans. Harsh words, my man. Harsh words. Round two. By the mid-40s, Dewey was the dominant leader in the Republican Party. He secured the presidential nomination almost unanimously in 1944, making him the youngest Republican to do so even now. But he's clobbered in the general election. When Taft and his supporters criticized Dewey's policy as liberal me-tooism, basically you just like the New Deal because you want to be popular, Dewey responds that he was following in the tradition of Republicans such as Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt, and that it was conservative reforms like antitrust laws and federal regulation of the railroads that made people like capitalism in the first place. By 1948, Senator Taft tries to run for president again, and he is soundly defeated by Dewey. Finish him! Dewey goes on to be narrowly defeated by President Truman. But in 1952, Taft decides to run for president for a third and final time. But it is his strongest showing yet. Dewey, now the governor of New York, doesn't run for president in 1952, but he's not just going to sit idly by and watch his arch-nemesis secure the presidential nomination. So while he doesn't run himself, he throws his support behind one of the greatest moderates in American political history. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president, you like I, I like I, everybody likes I for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take I to Washington. Before he ran for president, Dwight Eisenhower had never voted. He wasn't even a registered Republican when he won their nomination. He had never held elected office, but he was a war hero and just universally adored and respected. President Truman actually originally tried to persuade Eisenhower to run for president as a Democrat, and he volunteered to serve as Eisenhower's vice president. 
but Eisenhower turned him down. The Republicans had tried to get him to run for president also, and he turned them down too, at least at first. But then Truman starts messing up the Korean War, and Eisenhower decides to enter to challenge him. Senator Taft already had a lead at this point, but it really doesn't make much of a difference because as soon as Eisenhower enters the race, the nomination was his, and Taft never stood a chance. Fatality. Eisenhower was a moderate, and he governed like one. He didn't try to dismantle the social welfare programs of the New Deal, and with Republican control of Congress, he easily could have. In fact, the federal government continued to grow under his presidency. He expanded Social Security to cover the self-employed and the disabled. He established the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. He even increased the minimum wage. But he also emphasized the importance of a balanced budget, lowered taxes on corporations and the rich, longtime priorities of the Republican Party, and he famously said, in all those things which deal with people, be liberal, be human. And in all those things which deal with people's money or their economy or their form of government, be conservative. He called this brand of politics modern republicanism. He said, people talk about the middle of the road as though it's unacceptable. Actually, all human problems, excepting morals, come into the gray area. Things are not all black and white. There has to be compromises. The middle of the road is all of the usable surface, while the extremes, the right and left, are in the gutters. Eisenhower presides over one of the most prosperous eras in American history, putting the 1920s to shame. GDP grew by 150% from 1945 to 1960. In the 50s, the U.S. only made up 5% of the world's population, yet the U.S. economy produced half of the world's manufactured products, drove 75% of the world's cars, and consumed half of the world's energy. Union membership reached its peak with 35% of the workforce belonging to a union. The GI Bill and the Marshall Plan expenditures combined with Cold War defense spending contributed to economic growth, and that economic growth contributed to population growth. Over 50 million babies were born during the Eisenhower era. Shout out to the boomers. This is the era that cements the United States as a superpower, but it's also the era that kicks off the Red Scare, the Cold War, and America's fight against communism. I can't understate the impact of anti-communism on the Republican Party. Communism was an existential threat to the very idea of America. Because in the United States, the economy is mostly free of state control, the government is democratically elected, and individual freedoms are cherished. But in a communist system, everything is administered from the center. The party-led, non-democratic government controls the economy and society. Not to mention the Communist Manifesto argued for the abolition of the family, private property, nationality, country, religion, capitalism, and consumerism. They may as well have just called us out by name. Communism also presents a literal threat. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia has created an atomic explosion sends reporters racing for Flushing Meadow. In 1949, the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic device, meaning that the United States was no longer the only atomic power on Earth, which might make you really nervous when you just nuked Japan. Many people thought that the Allied powers had traded Hitler for Stalin, one dictator for another, except this time, Stalin had an atomic weapon. Not only that, but Americans were really suspicious. Like, how did the USSR get an atomic weapon so quickly? Someone had passed America's atomic bomb secrets to Russia. This was an undisputed fact that the whole world knew. That's right. In the 1950s, we learned that Soviet spies had infiltrated the Manhattan Project and spied on our atomic and hydrogen bomb programs. 
The federal government had laid the crime at the doorstep of two native New Yorkers, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The two admitted Communist Party members knew that they faced possible death sentences in the event of their conviction, but to the end they both protested their innocence of the theft. In April of 1951, the federal court of Judge Irving R. Kaufman found the pair guilty as charged and sentenced them to death in the electric chair to pay for their crime of treason. To conservatives in particular, communism was a big threat, similar to the New Deal. It represented an attack on tradition and institutions from a revolutionary force that wanted to abolish their way of life. To libertarian conservatives, communism represented the enslavement of the individual at the hands of the government, while traditionalist conservatives thought that communism was godless collectivism that wanted to unmake the moral core of every country it touched. And to moderate Republicans, communism represented a very literal threat to America's security and its role in the world. And the American people agreed. Communism was a threat to their everyday lives, their safety, their security, and their future. So unlike opposition to the New Deal or entering World War II, anti-communism was very popular with the masses. But conservatives weren't able to capitalize on the popularity of their position because they were disorganized, disillusioned, and full of disagreements. They weren't hot on Eisenhower's brand of republicanism. They saw him as a do-nothing president. They didn't think that he did enough to overturn the New Deal, because he didn't. And they didn't think that he did enough to fight communism, which he did. So they're happy to see him go, but at this point, Senator Taft has died and conservatives are leaderless. And they don't really have a unifying purpose. They were born in opposition to FDR and the New Deal, but FDR is dead now, and what's left of the New Deal is clearly here to stay. So the thing that brought them together is gone, and what remains is a movement made up of half-enemies and no friends. The conservative movement is split between libertarians and traditionalists, and the only thing that they can agree on is that they don't like the commies. Libertarianism is all about individual liberty, and it should never be defined by the terms liberal or conservative. And communism is no good. That's right. right? Big swing and a miss. Yeah. The libertarians are very similar to the modern party that bears their name. They value freedom and individual autonomy over everything. They believe that government has pretty much no right to interfere in your affairs, that the government's job is basically just to provide for the common defense and defend the rights that are outlined in the Constitution. No more and no less. They view the Constitution as a sacred text because it enshrines the freedoms that they love. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, religious freedom, freedom of the press, and it also limits federal power something else they love. Are you Ron Swanson? I am. Okay, what exactly did you teach my daughter? Oh, uh, you must be Mrs. Burkus. Lauren was supposed to do a paper on why government matters. This is what she wrote. It doesn't. <laughs> well said. Is this a joke? No, ma'am. I legitimately believe that. I'm a libertarian. The libertarian position is basically that the federal government is allowed to do only what the Constitution explicitly says that it can, and that's it. And they believe that those are the conditions under which humanity will thrive. They view the New Deal as unjust and tyrannical. They think it makes people dependent on the government for everything, the food they eat, the house they live in, the job they work. From their perspective, the New Deal makes it so that nobody can do anything for themselves. They have to ask the government for everything. And in the eyes of a libertarian, if a person's dependent on another person or the government, they're not free. The other division of conservatism is the traditionalists. At this point in history, a common critique of conservatism was that it was nothing more than a populist reaction to change. But then this guy comes along named Russell Kirk, and he writes a book called The Conservative Mind, and in it he links the values of American conservatism to the history of the country and the founding. And in doing so, he gives the conservative movement roots. He gives them history. He gives them tradition. 
he stakes out his vision for American conservatism, basically arguing that the job of a conservative is not to react, but to protect and to preserve. This vision of conservatism, one rooted in history, protection, and preservation, is the heart of the traditionalist movement. Traditionalists think that American greatness is in its history and in its founding, which is why they view the Constitution as a sacred document. And they think that those who seek revolution or radical change would seek to undo that which made our country so great. So traditionalist conservatives take it upon themselves to protect our country from forces of revolutionary change. If you apply this to what we just discussed with FDR and the New Deal, I actually think that the conservative movement starts to make a lot of sense. This fealty to tradition and history will stay with conservatives for a long time. It's formative for them in the movement that they belong to. But it's not formative for the libertarians. <laughs> Traditionalists think that libertarians are godless, heartless, and so stubbornly individualistic that they would always section themselves off into smaller and smaller groups until they were a party of one. Which, honestly, a libertarian might not hate. Libertarians think that traditionalists are overly sentimental and always looking backward, thus unable to see the future or improve. Now, these two groups are not united within their own movement, and they definitely aren't united with the moderate Republicans. So they can't gather political power or become any kind of social or political force in America because they can't even agree on anything other than the fact that they hate the commies. But in 1955, a man's going to hit the scene, and he'll change everything. I've often been quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. Do you think miniskirts are in good taste? On you, I think they are. <laughs> Why have you finally consented to appear on our show? Uh, because your producer wrote me an irresistible letter. He well, said, he's an irresistible fellow. What did he say? <laughs> well, in, to begin with, he promised to fly me out in an airplane with two right wings. <laughs> William F. Buckley Jr. He's a conservative icon and one of the most important figures in American conservatism, probably second only to Ronald Reagan. Buckley is the great rebrander, the father of fusionism, the Steve Jobs of the American conservative movement. Because like Steve Jobs, he might not have invented conservatism, but he's going to perfect it and make it something that people are actually talking about. Buckley is the first person that's able to fuse free market capitalism, libertarianism, traditionalism, and anti-communism into one coherent vision of American conservatism. Not only that, but he's capable of building the institutions that were needed to spread and defend his point of view. Buckley creates National Review, a conservative publication that's still alive today. And in doing that, he creates a platform to intellectually legitimize the conservative movement and for the first time directly challenge the liberal worldview, something so widely accepted up to this point it hadn't really received a credible challenge. Which is why it stumbles. The liberal worldview looks stuffy and bloated when you put it next to Buckley, who was formidable. I mean, the guy was sharp, funny, and scrappy as hell. And National Review was the perfect platform for his vision of conservatism. He founded the magazine with a couple of goals in mind keep the Republican Party, the primary political vehicle of conservatives, tilted to the right, eliminate any and all extremists from the conservative movement, love that, flay and fleece the liberals at every opportunity, which is kind of aggressive, and push hard for a policy of victory over communism in the Cold War. Buckley understood that the conservative movement could never rival liberal thought if it was always looking backward or making itself smaller. So he created a conservatism of ideas and took the movement from a philosophical position to a practical one. 
Buckley succeeds in redefining and rebranding American conservatism as an ideology, but he's an intellectual leader, not a political one. So even though Buckley's campaign to win hearts and minds was working, the conservative movement hadn't caught on politically just yet. The Republican Party was still very much ruled by the moderate Republicans. Though their hold on the party was waning, Eisenhower was not successful in moving the party toward his vision of modern republicanism. And when Richard Nixon, largely believed to be a moderate at the time, is defeated by John F. Kennedy, the moderate wing of the GOP is dealt a pretty critical blow. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. A bomb exploded in the 16th Street Baptist Church just before a Sunday morning service. Fifteen people were injured. Four children were killed. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against a common enemy. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. More than a hundred square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. The new communist campaign in Vietnam continues. A wandering band of members of a so-called religious cult with a leader they called Jesus has had three of its followers arrested in the investigation of the murder of Sharon Tate and six others. Guys, the 60s were crazy. Russia has nukes and infiltrated the U.S. government. In 1960, the Soviet Union built the biggest nuke on Earth. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis? Basically, the USSR brings their nukes to Cuba and they're like, God, hope we don't hit you. It's a massive, massive and very scary crisis in American politics and it lasts like 13 days. For 13 days, Americans are just waiting to see if they're gonna get nuked. That's fucking insane. That's insane. In 1963, a U.S. president is assassinated by a communist. Schools are running duck and cover drills. The U.S. enters Vietnam and there are troops on the news every night. And the nonviolent movement for civil rights and racial equality turns violent. 
The 1960s are dominated by urban riots over race. They result in the deaths of 200 people, 20,000 arrests, and so much damage. Like, if you adjust it for 2020 numbers, it was $322 million worth of damage in Detroit alone. And these riots were happening all across the country and all throughout the decade. Americans look on helplessly as Martin Luther King, the leader of the nonviolent movement, dies violently. Then Robert F. Kennedy, a senator and presidential nominee, is gunned down at a rally. The war in Vietnam is escalating, and an entire generation of young men will face the draft where they will be forced to go to war against their will. The Weather Underground, a radical leftist anti-war group, starts an urban bombing campaign targeting government buildings. Not to mention, it's a weirdly popular time for serial killers. The 1960s have the Manson murders, Ted Bundy, and the Zodiac Killer, just to name a few. And then closer to home, the U.S. starts to feel more dangerous because it was. Violent crime increased in the 60s by 126% from the start of the decade to the end. We have never hit those levels of violent crime since. It's easy to understand how American society could feel like it was coming apart at the seams. I'm telling you this so that you can understand the context that drives the events of this decade and the mindset of the people that are living through them. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a flashpoint for the country, but it's also a flashpoint for the Republican Party. The party of Lincoln historically has championed civil rights, and as a result, they have carried the loyalty of African-American voters for 100 years. But FDR changes that. When he runs on the New Deal, he wins 70% of the black vote, a first for Democrats. Well into the 50s and 60s, Republicans were still getting a healthy cross-section of the African-American vote. Eisenhower actually won 40% of the black vote, largely due to his support for Brown v. Board of Education and the fact that half of the Democratic Party was still racist as hell and the other half was failing to do much about it. So when JFK ran for president against Republican candidate Richard Nixon, Nixon was actually the candidate with the closest ties to the African-American community, something pretty unheard of for Republican candidates today. As a member of the Eisenhower administration, Nixon had gone out of his way to support the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1957, which attempted to strengthen voting rights for African-Americans. He also befriended an up-and-coming young civil rights activist that you might know. His name was Martin Luther King. King described Nixon as one of the most magnetic personalities that he had ever confronted. But when Martin Luther King was sitting in a jail cell in Georgia, it was actually John F. Kennedy who called King's wife to tell her that he was thinking of them both. And John F. Kennedy's brother, Bobby, interceded more directly and called the sentencing judge. Nixon, on the other hand, stayed quiet on the issue. Privately, Nixon was lobbying the Justice Department to intervene on King's behalf, but he was shot down, and Martin Luther King Jr. never forgave him. He thought they were close friends, but after that incident, King said, quote, When this moment came, it was like he had never heard of me, so this is why I really consider him a moral coward, end quote. Getting called a moral coward, to me, is like one of the unspeakable curses in Harry Potter. Like, I can't imagine anything worse, especially not from somebody that actually knows you. Yet still, even when Richard Nixon stumbled with Martin Luther King, he still managed to get about a third of the black vote in the 1960 presidential election. Simmering racial tensions come to a head in 1963, during Freedom Summer. Civil rights organizers in Mississippi had been fighting an uphill battle to register African Americans. We must be stronger than the enemy. They needed help from outside the state 
and looked north. They invited 700 volunteers, mainly white college students. Students who had no idea what they would be getting into. But that would quickly and tragically change. Three college students volunteering to help African Americans register to vote go missing on the first day. And six weeks later, the beaten bodies of the missing volunteers were recovered. They had been killed by a Ku Klux Klan lynch mob that had the protection and help of local policemen. Public outcry over the killings mounted. Where was federal protection? Why had the investigations been so slow? And many people believe that public outcry over the killings of these three students is what ultimately led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. I think the Civil Rights Bill is a good bill and it should be passed. And as a Republican, I'm proud that 80% uh, of the Republicans in the, con in the Congress voted for it and only 62% of the Democrats. And I trust that in the Senate, they'll have that same Republican support and that this split that exists in the Democratic Party where the Southern Democrats are opposed to it, uh, that they will not be able to, this time, block action that is needed for our country. One other thing on that, that if the Democratic administration had acted when they said they were going to, which was immediately after election, that they'd make civil rights a first order of business, which they didn't do, and they put it off for two and a half years, and it was only after these massive demonstrations and protests and all the suffering that they finally acted. He's right. Over 80% of Republicans voted to support the Civil Rights Act in both the House and Senate. Not only that, but when five Democratic senators try to block the bill from passing by filibustering for 60 days, Many believe that it is actually Republican Senator Everett Dirksen, a conservative that is responsible for breaking the Democratic filibuster against the bill. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law, and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. The Negro won his freedom then, he wins his dignity now. The Civil Rights Act passes, but it causes a massive fracture in both parties, and the results are lasting. Two Democratic presidents, first Kennedy and then Johnson, risked their political future and the future of their party on civil rights. President Johnson in particular shows real political courage here. So, tonight I urge every public official, every religious leader, every business and professional man, every working man, every housewife, I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people and to bring peace to our land. Senator Richard Russell Jr., a Democrat, warned President Johnson that his strong support for the Civil Rights Bill will, quote, not only cost you the South, but it will cost you the election, end quote. Except that's not what happens. President Johnson will go on to win the election of 1964. I'm not sure if it's the decency of American citizens that support his action on civil rights, or if it's the sudden injection of right-wing extremism that pulls people back to Johnson. I'm not sure. But maybe at the end of this next part, you'll know which side of that argument you land on. Remember when we were talking about the battle between moderates and conservatives for control of the GOP? Remember how the moderates were winning? Well, this battle heats up again in 1964, largely around the issue of civil rights. On the moderate side, we're looking pretty good. Once again, we have the governor of New York, except it's not moderate heartthrob Thomas Dewey anymore. It's now Nelson Rockefeller. 
the heir to one of the richest families in American history and the name behind our country's most famous Christmas tree. Remember this guy? I think the Civil Rights Bill is a good bill and it should be passed. Yep, that's him. Rockefeller's the leader of the moderate Republicans who have been sitting pretty since the last time that we checked in on them. The moderate Republicans are still dominant in Congress and they support the Civil Rights Bill just like Rockefeller said. But on the conservative side, something else is going on. Remember William F. Buckley Jr., the great rebrander? He authors an op-ed called Why the South Must Prevail. Yep. With a title like that, you know it's going to be a clunker. And it is. Buckley says, and I quote, The central question that emerges, he writes, is whether the white community in the South is entitled to take such measures as are necessary to prevail politically and culturally in areas which it does not predominate numerically. The sobering answer is yes, the white community is so entitled because for the time being, it is the advanced race, end quote. Yep, Buckley is literally arguing that the South must prevail on the Civil Rights Act because he believes that the white race is superior. He goes on to argue that the South must prevail on the issue of civil rights even if it means subverting the will of the majority of Americans. It's chilling, it's racist, it's undemocratic, and it's disgusting. When we last saw Buckley, he had become the leader of the conservative intellectual movement, so when he says something like that, it carries some serious weight. However, Buckley had yet to translate his intellectual capital into political power. But that all changes when he meets Barry Goldwater. Republicans agree heartily to disagree on many, many of their applications. But this Republican Party is a party for free men, not for blind followers and not for conformists. Barry Goldwater was a firebrand political figure and arguably the most influential loser in U.S. history. He was a very conservative senator from Arizona, and his plain-spoken, small-government rhetoric whipped up the conservative faithful into a frenzied state. He appealed to voters who opposed the New Deal and resented what they saw as their diminished control over their own lives and businesses. Voters who thought the government spent too much, interfered too much, and wielded too much power. Barry Goldwater represented a grassroots movement that had become fed up with decades of Democratic majorities. The good Lord raised this mighty republic to flourish as the land of the free, not to stagnate in the swampland of collectivism, not to cringe before the bullying of communism. Goldwater was unique in his anger. So many politicians of the time were buttoned up and proper, but Goldwater told it how it was. His anger brought about a righteous clarity in his positions. It, you never had to wonder what Barry Goldwater was for. He would tell you. It is a delusion that a world of conflict will somehow mysteriously resolve itself into a world of harmony if we just don't rock the boat or irritate the forces of aggression. And this is Hogwarts. Goldwater chose ideology over unity. He basically told moderate Republicans, I don't want your vote. I don't want you in this party. And his supporters, the grassroots base of the Republican Party, loved it. They thought the moderate Republicans compromised too much, and as a result of their weak leadership, the nation was sliding into chaos and losing the fight against communism. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice that moderation in the pursuit of justice 
is no virtue. When Goldwater decided to challenge moderate Republican Nelson Rockefeller in the presidential primary, he excited a coalition of libertarians and conservatives that felt that their views had been sidelined by the Republican Party's moderate establishment, that viewed Goldwater and the people that supported him as crazy right-wing crackpots. These conservatives, who wanted to contain the role of the federal government and roll back communism, believed that they were saving not just the party, but Western civilization. So when they were feeling cast aside by moderates, the stakes were pretty high. So from their perspective, something had to change. And that something is the leadership of the Republican Party. So this all comes to a head at the Republican National Convention. Moderates know that they're in trouble. They've been struggling to push back a tide of right-wing extremism in their party for a long time. But aligned behind Goldwater in this particular presidential primary, they've become more powerful than ever before. And this is an ugly convention, probably the ugliest party convention since 1912, at least for the Republicans. In the next episode, we'll talk about how crazy it gets at the Democratic convention, but I digress. When Rockefeller speaks, he's booed by the conservative insurgents that have flooded the convention hall. The Republican Party should reject extremism from either the left or the right. Precisely one year ago today, on July 14th, 1963, I warned that the Republican Party is in real danger of subversion by a radical, well-financed, highly disciplined majority. But it's too late for that. Goldwater secures the nomination easily, dealing a death blow to the moderate Republicans. Their final stand comes from George Romney, the father of current moderate Republican Mitt Romney, who tries to pull his party back from extremism. I'm here at this convention because I profoundly believe that present basic trends and perils are rushing us toward a national crisis. And I believe to avoid or to survive that crisis the Republican Party must promote the program and provide the leadership that will capture the interest, respect, and support of a majority of Americans. I think the future of this nation depends on that. Our party was founded at a time of grave national crisis. It was our mission at our birth under Lincoln to preserve this nation established by divine providence with a divine destiny. The nation and its destiny were imperiled not only by the irreconcilable conflict between slavery and freedom, but also by the extremism of that time. While their political leaders sought refuge in silence, while other political leaders did, Lincoln spoke out as forcefully against the know-nothing extremists of his day as he did about slavery. He attacked both as a violation of the source, as the source of freedom and greatness. He attacked both slavery and know-nothing extremism as a violation of the principle of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. And had Lincoln ignored the know-nothing extremists of his day, he would not have been president of the United States and saved the nation. 
quote, as a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, quote, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, and these are still Lincoln's words, when it comes to this, I shall prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty to Russia, for example, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of democracy. Those are Lincoln's own words. Historically, the moderates will hold out a little bit longer, but they will never reach the heights of political power within the Republican Party that they had before Barry Goldwater. The election of 1964 marks a change in Northern and Southern party loyalties. The presidential election of 1964 is a realignment election. It marks a change in Northern and Southern party loyalties. Democrats are pushed farther to the left and Republicans, following Barry Goldwater, take a giant step to the right. It also showed the collective power of ideologically driven, broad-based grassroots organizers and small-dollar donors. That's a lot of change for one of the least competitive elections in history. No one, not even Goldwater, thought that the Republicans were going to win the general election. Voters were still recovering from the trauma of President Kennedy's assassination less than a year prior. And three presidents in a year would just be one too many. Moreover, in the first months in the White House, Lyndon Johnson had done a great job. The former Senate Majority Leader's legislative skills and dominant style quickly produced the historic Civil Rights Act, a vision for a war on poverty, plus drawing board proposals for many other expansions of the federal government's role. And if that's what you're into, which in the 60s many people were, it sounds pretty good. Plus, and I can't understate this, People thought Goldwater was a right-wing extremist. His campaign slogan was, In your heart, you know he's right. And the Johnson campaign countered by saying, But in your guts, you know he's nuts. Goldwater only wins six states. One of them, his native Arizona, and the other five were southern states, which up to this point had voted so solidly Democrat that they were called the Solid South. Interestingly enough, though, the states that Goldwater won have been in Republican hands ever since, give or take Arizona. I want to pause on this for a second because this party realignment is incredibly important to understanding the parties that we have today. Goldwater won support in the South because he was one of the few Republican senators that had voted against the Civil Rights Act. He said that he thought parts of it were unconstitutional and represented gross federal overreach. This vote endeared him to Southern segregationists, many of whom were Democrats, that would later leave the party and throw their support behind Republicans, but only after Goldwater wins the nomination. Now, based on this one vote alone, it would be easy to write Goldwater off as a racist. But it's not that simple. Goldwater actually had a principled track record in support of civil rights. He integrated his family business in the 1930s, as soon as he took over control and had the power to do so. He was a lifelong member of the NAACP and actually founded their Arizona chapter. Goldwater saw to it that the Arizona Air National Guard was racially integrated from its inception in 1946, two years before President Truman ordered the military as a whole to be integrated. Goldwater worked with Phoenix civil rights leaders to successfully integrate public schools a year prior to Brown v. Board. 
He was an early supporter of the Phoenix chapter of the National Urban League. And when they first started out and they were losing money, he actually covered the differences with his own personal money. During his first year in the Senate, Goldwater was responsible for the desegregation of the Senate cafeteria after he insisted that his black legislative assistant, Catherine Maxwell, be served along with every other Senate employee. He voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1957, supported the Civil Rights Act of 1960, and the 24th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. And in 1964, he reluctantly voted against the Civil Rights Act, a decision that he would struggle with for the rest of his life. It's easy to judge people based on one decision that you don't like, but people are more complicated and rarely exist in a moral binary. Barry Goldwater is an extremist. The moderates he sought to eradicate from the Republican Party were most likely people like me. And probably people like many of you who are listening. If we were alive at the same time, I would have told you that Barry Goldwater was dangerous. Even now, more than 60 years later, I can tell you that. And I mean it. Goldwater's legacy is the legitimization of extremists, racists, and the beginning of the end of the Republican Party. But I think he was also a good man. I'm not sure what to make of these two truths, but I think it's important to grapple with them because my original take on Goldwater was that he was an extremist, a zealot, and the godfather of the alt-right. But the more research I did, the more uncomfortable I became with this characterization because he is all of those things. But he's not only those things. It makes you wonder how many people we call enemies that are actually just our opponents. I don't know. It made me think of all the ways that we dehumanize people we disagree with. I am constantly trying to find empathy for people that hold opinions that are different than mine. Yet I completely wrote Goldie off based on the surface-level knowledge that I had of him prior to this podcast. My opinion on Goldwater? I think he was a true believer. The actions that he took throughout his life, and even his prior voting record, would all suggest that he believed in racial equality and was a proud supporter of civil rights. So when he says that he felt that particular bill was unconstitutional and an overreach of the federal government, I'm inclined to believe that that's what he thought. But the burden of leadership is that you're responsible not just for your own beliefs, but also what your beliefs inspire in others. Goldwater's vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 gave cover and comfort to Southern segregationists that were racist as hell. Democrats owe a debt of gratitude to Barry Goldwater because he creates a near consensus among African Americans in favor of their party. Until 1964, presidential nominees from the party of Lincoln would often receive up to a third of the black vote. But Goldwater's support from African Americans dipped to an estimated 4%. And in the 50 years since, the most a GOP nominee could hope for was about 10% of the African American vote. If you're curious, Donald Trump brought home a whopping 1%. After 1964, things change in the Republican Party. It's one of those moments that severs history, forever allowing it to be defined as what happened before and what happened after. After 1964, in the fallout of Goldwater's loss, a new, a new movement takes hold of the Republican Party. Historians refer to it as the New Right. It keeps all of the hard and sharp edges of Goldwater's campaign and harnesses that energy into grassroots activism. The new right doesn't want to conserve like the conservatives of old. It wants to change. 
The new right is combative, prioritizing combat over conciliation and disruption over stability, something that would be outrageous to the Republicans of old. It's a noted departure. Nineteen sixty-four is also important because it cements the collapse of the New Deal coalition. In the face of urban riots, the Vietnam War, the opposition of many Southern Democrats to desegregation and the civil rights movement, and disillusionment that the New Deal could be revived by Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, the American people start to sour on the Democratic Party, with many believing that they'd gone too far, too much change, too much government, too many radicals. Consider how anti-communist the American people and the Republican Party in particular have been up to this point in the podcast. And then consider that many young people on the left were proudly espousing and spreading communist ideology. They engaged in domestic terror and rioting under the guise of the anti-war movement, and it put a lot of people off. It felt un-American. And maybe it was. The radical left that Fox News warns you about? Yeah, they actually did exist in the 1960s. And they were as radical as Fox News would have you believe Joe Biden is today. So we start to see a reversal in the three decades of Democratic power in the 1966 midterm elections. Republicans make major gains in part through a challenge to Johnson's war on poverty. Large-scale civic unrest in the inner city was escalating, reaching a climax in 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King when 115 cities all across the country experienced rioting. Blue-collar white voters who had been an important part of the New Deal coalition felt abandoned by the Democratic Party's concentration on racial minorities. When Nixon ran for president, he found himself in a strange position. After the political realignment of 1964, he couldn't win the presidential nomination without the support of Southern segregationists. So he famously deployed a Southern strategy that relied on what many people called coded racism or dog-whistle politics. He called for the restoration of law and order, which meant a crackdown on protests, marches, and boycotts. He waged a war on drugs that played on racialized fears about crime. And he really didn't draw a hard line on civil rights enforcement. And if you think that he's just responding to the chaos that was the 1960s, I can agree with you up to a point. Except there is a pretty compromising video of Lee Atwater basically spelling out the Southern strategy. I would play it on this show, but he says the N-word a lot, and that's just really not the type of content that I want to distribute. So if you're interested, you can Google it, but otherwise, just got to take my word for it. Nixon and his campaign betray the legacy of Abraham Lincoln and embrace racism to win. And when they do. And there's a weird dynamic at play here, and I think that it's important that we all understand it. Political parties and the presidential candidates want to win, right? I mean, we all know that. But with the Southern strategy, you see a shift start to root itself in American party politics. Historically, citizens would move to the party or candidate that reflects their values and issue positions, or candidates would lead their voters to embrace their views. But with the Southern strategy, we see parties start to move to meet their voters, instead of the other way around. Instead of taking principled stances, parties just expand their platform to accommodate whatever the base believes. And while this trend won't be locked in until after the presidency of Ronald Reagan, it starts here. And it continues to this day. 
Coming out of World War I, our country was broken and tired. The Republican Party gave us stability, normalcy, security. They created the conditions for business and innovation to thrive. They increased our industrial output by 70%. They oversaw the creation of the car, the radio, the airplane, all kinds of things. They pushed back against the KKK, and during President Coolidge's presidency, Klan membership dropped by millions. They created opportunity. They made the lives of everyday Americans better. But they also created the conditions that would lead to the Great Depression. Under FDR and the New Deal, Americans trade individualism for collectivism and throw the Republican Party into a tailspin and an identity crisis. A crisis that leads to the birth and rise of conservatism. A movement fueled and guided by William F. Buckley Jr. and then actualized by Barry Goldwater. Goldwater loses in a landslide and it looks like the end of conservatism and the triumph of liberalism, but it was neither. Out of the wreckage of Goldwater's candidacy rose a charismatic conservative star that you'll meet in our next episode. But Goldwater's campaign will permanently change the Republican Party, turning them away from civil rights and laying the foundation for the right-wing extremism that we see in the party today. And in a way that breaks my heart because one thing that strikes me about the Republican Party that we've discussed today is the love in it. At their core, in their heart, they have a deep love of country and a profound reverence for its values, its founding, and the institutions that preserve it. Time and time again, they lash out at what they believe to be an attack against history, tradition, and institutions by those that favor revolution. We saw this first with the backlash against immigration in the 20s, their opposition to the New Deal, and their fierce anti-communism. And the thing with tradition is that it's often rooted in principle, faith, and belief. The Republicans we met in this episode are steeped in principle. Whether you agree with them or don't, they hold to their convictions, they're steadfast and unwavering in what they believe. The party of Lincoln carries the torch, the sword, and the shield for civil rights. They're the catalyst for women's suffrage. They introduced the bill that ratifies the 19th Amendment 40 years before women would win the right to vote. And they don't give up. Democrats blocked that bill four times. But when Republicans regain control of the Senate, they pass it right away. When the amendment was submitted to the states, 26 of the 36 states that ratified it had Republican legislatures. Of the nine states that voted against ratification, eight were Democratic. The GOP was the first major party to advocate equal rights for women and the principle of equal pay for equal work. They sought to eradicate lynching. They pushed back against the KKK. They offered citizenship rights to indigenous people. Cool guy Coolidge? He called for half a million dollars to establish a medical school at Howard University, a historically black college. And that's a lot for Coolidge because he was cheap as hell. It was Eisenhower that ordered federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to end white supremacist violence and protest against the desegregation of local schools. Republicans led the way on the Civil Rights Act of 1957, 1960, and 1964. But the 60s are a decade of chaos, violence, disorder, and fear. And it shakes something loose in the conservative movement, something that won't fully metastasize for decades. But when it does, it is a cancer. We opened this episode with the Republican Party at the height of its power, and I'm gonna close it during one of its darkest nights. But don't worry, next time we talk, it'll be morning in America. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening.